Really on edge this morning. A new chapter this morning in the battle against Ebola. You're looking live at the apartment of the first American infected with this deadly disease here at home. And Robin, as you know, the nurse's apartment off limits right now. Hazmat teams clearing it out overnight. The whole neighborhood on alert. You heard that recording there. President Obama now calling for new measures to fight this disease. And we've got team coverage, mm -hmm. of course, this morning. Dr. Besser is back with us. But we're going to begin with ABC's Tom Yamas outside the hospital in Dallas. Tom, good morning. David, good morning to you. Hospital officials tell us that nurse was wearing a gown, gloves, a mask, and a shield while she was treating Thomas Eric Duncan, yet somehow she still got infected with Ebola. No one knows exactly why, but this morning everyone wants answers, including the president and her own neighbors who got this required reading. Ebola guidelines from the CDC dropped off on their doorsteps. This morning, this quaint Dallas community is on high alert after neighbors learned they're now living in a possible danger zone. Please be advised that a healthcare worker who lives in your area has tested positive for the Ebola virus. That automated call followed by a swarm of hazmat teams working through the night to clear out, tape off, and decontaminate the apartment of that still unidentified nurse, the first person to contract Ebola inside the United States. Definitely it's scary being in Dallas, but then when it's like right, right here. here. The nurse had been caring for Thomas Eric Duncan before he died from the virus on Wednesday. She's now in isolation at that same Texas hospital after driving herself to the emergency room to report a low-grade fever on Friday. That healthcare worker uh, is a heroic person um, who provided care to, to Mr. Duncan. While the hospital says it was careful to follow all CDC guidelines, they admit sometime during Duncan's 11-day stay, there was a mistake. President Obama now demanding the CDC investigate how the breach occurred, as health officials fear this nurse may not have been the only one. Unfortunately, it is possible in the coming days that we will see additional cases of Ebola. Right now there are 48 people still under close watch who were exposed to Duncan before he was isolated. This nurse was not one of them, only coming into contact after he was hospitalized. Now she starts her own ring of possible exposure, extending so far to one person, believed to be a close friend or a boyfriend who came into contact with her once her symptoms became contagious. Her dog also being monitored as officials try to determine the transmission threat posed by animals. Now the race is on to find anyone else who may have been infected. Officials are canvassing the neighborhood armed with police. And the fear of possible contagion spreading throughout the country. In Los Angeles, a United flight was quarantined on the runway after a passenger traveling from Africa complained of flu-like symptoms. Fortunately, it was a false alarm. And Ebola is taking its toll on this hospital in Dallas in several ways. Ambulances will no longer bring new patients here because of a staffing issue. This, as the CDC says, more cases are likely. All right. Episode 144, possibly. 134. whatever. I don't know. That was quite the... Uh, we, we just jumped 10 ahead. It's fine. Quite the tale we're in the middle of. Yeah. Do you guys like rock music? Because I sure do. Rock music is fun. I went to uh, Austin City Limits in 2014. Did I ever tell you guys that? <laughs> I feel like I've heard that recently. Yeah, right after, right after the what seemed like to be the end of the Ebola crisis. And what's funny is, well, first let's introduce ourselves. I'm Tommy Two Underscore Zero. Uh, you can find me at Glenn Three Underscore Eleven. 
And you can find me at point break underscore Dave. And you can find the show at where to turn pod. When we I went to Austin really. for Austin City Limits, not that I didn't realize it already, but it was a huge national story. So we would find ourselves in a lot of cabs, a lot of situations where you're having to interface with service industry people, and they would say, like, hey, you in town for the festival? Yep. Where are you guys from? Dallas. Oh, my gosh, they have Ebola there. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not say a word about Did it. I know that? Because <laughs> people were legitimately freaked out, and if I would have been, like, trying to, like, get a reaction, I'd be like, yeah, I actually work at that hospital. Like, I think people would have, like, Kicked get out of out. my cab. Yeah. I mean, people were still panicked, and they even, I don't know if you remember, but I think... NASCAR was coming to town. Yeah. Uh, the Cowboys definitely had a game. And they, the leagues were issuing memos to traveling fans and players uh, saying, we, we, we feel the city's safe, yeah. basically. Because there was so much unfounded panic about what could or couldn't happen. There were signs and billboards throughout the city. Like, I remember on com- my commute to work, there were some signs, like, listing stuff, like, if you have certain symptoms, like, with a number to call. Yeah. So... Quickly, in your, as we detailed, the last weeks, week plus of your life, you're doing the kind of PR management. You're, it sounds like, at least early on, a lot of it was writing bullet points that were more educational of like, to the general public. Like, here's what Ebola is. Yeah. Here's what the symptoms yep. are. Yep. You... At the end of last episode, told us the funny story about riding in the elevator. Yep. You have been living with these bullet points of what the symptoms are rolling around in your head. Yep. Do you ever kind of like, huh, feel a little warmish right now? Yeah. I I bought two thermometers, one for home and one for work. <laughs> I thought you were going to say one for your mouth. and <laughs> Yeah, one for the other spot. You got spot. them both in there simultaneously. Yeah. Dual penetration. <laughs> I Man. was never instructed that I needed to be quarantined. I checked my temperature a hundred times more than the people in quarantine did. <laughs> without question. Okay. All right. And I and I still to this day thank the Lord that I didn't come down with a cold during this month. Yeah. Because I do get sick in October out. a lot. I'm right now I'm taking allergy medicine. I would have I would have probably passed away from the fear. <laughs> so I thank the good Lord that I was in good health. But there was a thought, like, when I was even at Austin City Limits of thinking, my gosh, you know, what if by some just happenstance that a doctor I was talking to that wasn't symptomatic passed on to me, and then they, then I'm on the news is like, oh, and yeah. one of your employees was at a 100,000-person music festival. Your patient zero. And, and I mean, imagine the a pandemonium that that could have... So uh, so ACL went great. Who Day headlined? One, I think that was um, 2014... So it wasn't Mumford and Sons. No, because it was That's Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah. Pearl Jam headline Sunday. Oh, yeah, because you didn't see it. You yeah. went to see Calvin Murray or yeah. whatever his name is. Danger Mouse or Modest Mouse or... No, neither of those two. So shameful. Calvin Harris, I think. Yeah, that's what it is. So day one, day two goes good. Um, the plan was have a big night with Calvin Harris, sleep it off Sunday night, drive back late in the day Monday and then report back for work Tuesday. So we get back to the hotel room after Calvin Harris, getting ready for bed. Um, And, of course, ACL is like any typical sporting event. Your phone does not work there. Yeah. There was 100,000 teenagers trying to use their phones. So real quick, what day of the week was it when the patient passed? 
I don't recall, but I'm, I'm, it was a couple of days. It was midweek because it was a couple of days before ACL, and we would have left for ACL on a, on a Thursday night or you Friday morning. Thursday night. Because it's Friday morning. through Sunday. So when you left or if you left Friday morning, Friday afternoon, had the media peeled out of their little parking lot where they were all set up? Yeah, it was about half full. Oh yeah, the, because you know, for all intents and purposes, the story was over. Yeah, there was still a lot of you know aftermath, and and there was a lot of you know work that we were going to do to try to kind of re- rebuild the trust of the community that had already kind of started to play out. But but for all intents and purposes, the sensational elements of the story were mm-hmm. no longer. It in went play. from level ten to level one. Yeah, yeah. So you are getting a no, well deserved. Yeah, few and days my bo- boss was was super cool about the whole thing, and she's like, "Man, you deserve it." You know, because because again, because of the level of access I had, I got thrust into a lot of things I probably shouldn't have been thrust into just because I was the only one that knew how to do certain things. So she was she was super cool about it. So we were we had a great time. Well, we get back to the hotel Sunday after Calvin, and I notice that I've gotten just an inordinate amount of text messages, and they all come in at once, like in a burst. And it's like, oh my gosh, we need you back. Um, something's happened. And I'm reading through them, and it's two of our employees have become symptomatic, and oh, no. they're in quarantine for the disease. And, and we need all hands on deck. So I remember, so we had our hotel room booked for that Sunday night. I remember looking at my wife, and I'm like, sweetie, I'm sorry. It's like, we have to go right now. Yeah. So we jumped in the car, and I remember listening on Sirius XM to the end of Pearl Jam set as we were driving out of Austin, because they... they they started, like, Calvin and them overlap, but they played, like, an hour and a half past Calvin. So we, we just bailed on our last night of hotel, drove, you know, drove back home that night, and I went in, you know, went home, changed clothes, and went into work. There's troubling news from a U.S. hospital dealing with the infection. A second nurse in Dallas has tested positive for Ebola. Amber Vinson is, for now, in stable condition, but her case is raising serious concerns that Measures they're using to contain Ebola are not measuring up. CBC's Lindsay Duncombe has more from Dallas. Peter, everything we're learning about how this hospital handled Ebola seems to show it wasn't ready. And what happened here put people at risk. Crews moved in to decontaminate her Dallas apartment this morning. Her neighbors add their voices to the chorus of criticism. Aren't they supposed to be the ones that are the most protected, the most knowledgeable in how to treat this and not transmit it? It seems like the smartest people are the ones getting the sickest. It started when Thomas Eric Duncan was sent home from the emergency room without an Ebola test. When he returned days later, he was very sick. Both infected nurses, Amber Vinson and Nina Pham, cared for Duncan on the three days his symptoms of diarrhea and vomiting were the worst. In an anonymous statement delivered through a union, nurses at the hospital said their protective gear was flimsy, with skin exposed. That Duncan spent hours in a room with other patients, officials resisting nurses' calls to isolate him. Hazardous waste was allowed to pile up. Initially, what was said is that these nurses weren't following protocol. What the nurses are saying, there were no protocols. Wow. And we had a press conference that night, overnight, um, and outside in the dark um, to notify the remaining media um, that, yeah, that we had two employees under suspicion. Um, and at that, that point, things... Now, all the CNN trucks are just hitting the U-turn on yeah. 20 headed back. And at that, at that point, it, it was just 
absolutely what else can happen because the whole the whole thinking that that made everybody sane was this is a terrible disease that's out had an outbreak in Africa but the reason there was an outbreak in Africa is because of the things you said they they don't they don't have the same standards of clinic clinical protocols they don't have the same standards for how they bury and dispose of bodies in America we're so careful in the clinical setting this could never become an outbreak and now two people that and there was no reason to it i mean there's a lot of speculation about what happened, but to my knowledge, that was never it was never figured out what the actual reason was. There was never like a moment where they right. said, you know, oh my gosh, you know, th- then this window broke or this this you know seal broke. They don't know. They just know that they both they both tested positive. Yeah, and that's and that's when everything changed because then then people started to turn against us um, because now now we looked like a reckless and unsafe mm-hmm. institution. It got even worse because one of the two nurses had flown on an airplane between right. when she contracted the disease and became symptomatic. So now you've got a potential United States-wide outbreak. Wasn't she going to Houston because like her wedding? Or I think she went like to that? Chicago for Chicago. her wedding. In in true story, and and whether or not this was related, but like the store that she went to to buy her wedding dress, yeah, went bankrupt because yeah. they said because of this because there was there was litigation from that store because so, nobody would go into it after right. she visited. And you kind of touched on this, but I mean, we covered last episode that it was a horrible um, situation when the patient passed and everyone was, you know, obviously very upset. Yeah. Um, But if you had, if it had stopped with that first patient, obviously not the win everyone was hoping for, but like you said, like, hey, this person walked in we were able to quarantine and stop it there and, you know, treat as best we could and basically keep all medical personnel from contracting it. That's sort of a win. Yeah. And I think is, is how people would compartmentalize it in their brain. It's a total win because it said, okay, this guy got this disease in another country. He came here. He waited too long to seek treatment. We we did the best we could and we've moved on and that and that would have been the end of the story. Yeah. But, but then but now you've got this raging fear of oh my gosh these people that are trained you know not to let this happen in an environment where this shouldn't happen it's happened and then what does that mean for the wider public and then all the just the the lack of knowledge about how the disease worked and how it spread just spawned off all of this panic and. I don't sidetrack and maybe yeah. you're gonna get to this are you gonna get to anything with because i believe it was months or maybe a year prior to this when um uh blank and i's name dr brantley yeah was flown here yes and that was a big deal like even allowing a plane with an ebola patient yeah. to come here yeah absolutely okay and and they were able to save him obviously yes. um and i think the thought was then well, maybe the reason that the first patient didn't make it was because this hospital is not that great, which is not true because there weren't really clinical protocols to how to treat Ebola and everything that was happening was in concert with every, you know, I think every professional governmental and medical agency that would collaborate with us. I mean, nobody was rooting against us in this, yeah. in this situation. I just think that there was, there were certain things that weren't known. So now we've got our own two people here, and then the question quickly becomes, well, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to try to play this out again and put our hospital and our staff through this again, or are we going to transfer them to 
one of the few locations in the U.S. that actually is set up to handle this kind of a situation. Because you, your hospital has basically had like a two-day breather. Yeah, we've had a two-day breather. We've got an exhausted staff, and now we've got a terrified staff because yeah, they could be next. Because they could be next. And were the two nurses in question here were they on the floor that you guys had turned into a hotel? That I don't know, actually. Okay. I do not know that, but I don't think so. I think they were both allowed to travel freely because okay. they had made it through whatever the, mm-hmm. the concern time frame was. And, and that's what made it so scary is, is then, you don't, then you really wonder, like, okay, well, could there be more that are just you know, days away from materializing? And, it, and, and that, that part of the situation just, just absolutely crippled the morale of the hospital. I mean, everybody at that point, just there was no desire to go on because you've got these PR aces that are like, hey, you know, you guys might want to think about hanging on to these patients because this could really look good for you if you cure them of Ebola. And we're like, no, no, no. Like at this point, I think that's the every, right play. Like the hospital president at that point steps in and says, no. Right. Like my people can't be put through this again. Yeah. And and they actually took one of the two to the same place I believe Dr. Brantley went, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's just off the top of my head recollection. We begin the nationwide demand for answers about Ebola. Criticism of the government's response is growing. The CDC gave the green light for the second nurse diagnosed to fly commercial from Cleveland to Dallas. That happened even though she reported a fever. This morning, she's in a special isolation unit in Georgia, and we're covering the story across the country from new fears in Ohio to the CDC in Atlanta, plus President Obama's response in Washington. But we begin with Manuel Bohorkas in Dallas at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital. Manuel, good morning. Good morning. Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital is now offering rooms here to 75 health care workers who are being monitored for possible exposure during the care of the original Ebola patient to avoid even the remote possibility of exposing others. 29-year-old Amber Vinson was covered from head to toe in a yellow hazmat suit and loaded out of an ambulance. She walked onto a plane taking her to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. It's one of four specialized facilities in the U.S. equipped to treat Ebola victims. Vincent is the second nurse to contract the deadly virus after treating Ebola patient Thomas Eric Duncan. He died last week. The CDC is under fire after it was revealed Vincent called the agency before flying back to Dallas on Monday. She reported a low-grade fever of 99.5 degrees and asked if she should board the plane. Vincent was given the go-ahead by the CDC because their guidelines indicated a threshold of 100.4 degrees to prevent travel. CDC Director Thomas Frieden says in hindsight, Vincent should not have been allowed to fly. Crews started the process of decontaminating Vincent's apartment early Wednesday. The hospital has been criticized for how it handled Duncan's care. He was initially misdiagnosed, and nurses claimed they weren't given clear protocols to handle a possible Ebola patient. We're a hospital that may have done some things different with the benefit of what we know today, but makes no mistake, no one wants to get this right more than our hospital. Overnight, the hospital issued a statement refuting several accusations made by a group of anonymous nurses through a union. The hospital says Duncan was never left in a public area of the hospital for hours but was isolated. Nurses did wear protective gear following CDC guidelines, though at the beginning some sizes were too large. And once Ebola was suspected, the patient's lab specimens were triple bagged. 
Still, a hospital executive is expected to apologize later today for mistakes that were made. The first nurse to contract the virus, Nina Pham, remains here in good condition. So real quick, because probably not everyone is familiar with Kent Brantley. Mm -hmm. He was a doctor that was basically treating Ebola victims, I guess, or patients in Africa, contracted it, and then was, I guess, through you know government channels, they decided to bring him back to the U.S. so he could be treated. Correct. So and like he the, recovered. He did. Did he buy all the seats on the Southwest plane like Vince Young did? <laughs> I don't know. I think they may have done I something think he a got little more per- secure. He got A-list preferred, at least, I'm thinking. He wasn't boarding at, like, B-24. Hey, Kent Brandley went to uh, the NFL factory that Tommy and I attended. That's true. Is that right? Yeah. right. Wow. Proud alum. All right. I think he's going to beat me out for alumnus of the year. Yeah. He's at least going to – like, you're not even the most famous alumnus to deal with the ball. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's saying something. So about this time, morale of the hospitals at an all-time low. And I'm going to tell you, this story won't make sense now, but it will when we get into litigation. But we thought an idea might be to just have a support rally for the employees because, you know, you've got these people that are just whipped. Every TV station they were turning on is saying the place they work is incompetent. And they've been put through hell for two or three weeks. And we thought, you know what we're going to do is when, when they transfer out our employees to the other facilities, we're going to have a rally that is going to be like us cheering for them, get well soon, and we're going to bring all the staff together and wish them well. So our team helped organize a lot of that, including um, helping make some of the signs that were held up during the rally, which we thought at the time was just being polite because we were like, we want to show these nurses we care, and was later spun a completely different direction during litigation. Like not taking it seriously? Well, no, it was us manipulating a a situation Uh, for our own benefit, using it for political gain when... I can tell you categorically, being there, it came from the most genuine place right. possible. And these two nurses, I mean, obviously the hospital is, you know, still reeling from the first go around. But now, you know, these are people that the n- people treating the patient care team, like, know these people. Like, they work with them. These are their friends. Yeah, no, like I mean, they go to the hospital cafe yeah, and these lunch are, with them. Absolutely. These are part of the team. I mean, yeah. these are well-liked, well-known people around the hospital. Which, I mean, it just makes it so much, not that the other situation wasn't sad, but it just makes it so much more real. Yeah. So one of the things that happened is while they're getting ready to transfer the, the two nurses, one of the doctors who had been in close communication with us said, you know, I go and see them, round on them, you know, however many times a day. And he's like, they're actually doing surprisingly well because they got treated, you know, they were, they were basically treated as soon as they became symptomatic. Like, mm-hmm. in the case of Ebola, like, they're they're in the best possible scenario right now. Is there was no there was no two day hang period where they were not getting any intervention. Do you at a high level, if you even know, what is the treatment? Like what were they doing for I mean, they were they were looking at different kind of antivirals because it is a virus. And then also like the the things that kill you with Ebola are like fluid loss, dehydration. So you know, these are the things that, you know, you would tell yourself, well in Africa maybe they're not is sophisticated to keep up with. So if you're in an American hospital, they can keep you your electrolytes balanced. They can keep you hydrated. Like they can keep your organs from failing. They can monitor you in ways that you know that that's the stuff you tell yourself to give you comfort that this could work out. So this doctor says, you know what would be really cool is if we had her send a video message out to the Dallas community saying that she's doing okay. 
and showing that she's doing okay, you know, saying, but also showing, because I think, you know, people's minds go to a really dark place and they picture this just, you know, sadistic scene that's happening. And, you know, the video could show like, no, she looks like herself. She's communicating. And he comes to us with this idea and he says, look, I've got a GoPro camera. You know, obviously like the GoPro camera is getting burned afterwards. I mean, yeah. nothing that goes in there is coming out. Um, we could make this happen. The 26-year-old nurse who volunteered to treat Ebola's patient zero in the U.S. is amazingly upbeat after having to switch from one isolation ward to another. Moments later, she gets emotional, knowing she's about to leave. Now, Nina Pham's isolation is more intense. She's sealed off inside a high containment chamber, the special clinical studies unit at the National Institutes of Health. Doctors say she's sitting up and responsive. She's interactive with the staff. Um, she's eating uh, and she uh, is able to uh, interact freely and really think she's doing uh, quite well compared to what we were told about her status at the other hospital. The other hospital, Texas Health Presbyterian in Dallas, asked to have FAM transferred. Much of the hospital's staff who treated Thomas Eric Duncan is being monitored for symptoms. At least 50 healthcare workers there may have been exposed to Ebola. Like, we could do this. She'll do it. I've talked to her. She'll do it. So we go through our legal department, our consenting department. You know, there's this whole debate of, like, normally when we video somebody, they have to sign a consent form. Well, what are you going to do with that consent form? Like, right. Oh, yeah, we just put it, it in a file. You yeah. Know? yeah, that's good, right? So we, we work out a whole a whole situation where she's going to you know be given the ability to approve it, where she's going to consent to it. We feel pretty confident that we're not violating privacy, that everybody's agreed to it. Is this the Monday you're back from ACL? This is, this is right after. Monday, I don't Tuesday. know yet, right in that time frame. Okay. So my job at this point is I manage all the social media channels, I manage the YouTube channel, is going to be to facilitate getting this pushed out on YouTube. So the video gets shot. Um, of course, the, it gets edited down, not for content reasons, but because because of the way that the they had they, they had to start the video, you know, while they're assembling this guy in all of his protective gear. So there's all kinds of run out. The GoPro, sorry, quick logistical question. Yeah, GoPro able to upload it on Wi-Fi, or do you have to USB it into a computer? No, we we there was a computer in the room, so we were able to oh, okay. access it there. So We're we not got, putting this yeah. on your laptop. We got the video back. <laughs> we got the video back. We made a few decisions, like we we enhanced the audio so you could hear it because it was very muffled. We then made the decision to put subtitles on it because you still couldn't hear it. That's offensive. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm gonna just ignore that question or statement. So, like when she was speaking, it didn't really line up with the words. Is that what you're? No, we oh. just we put subtitles on it so you could hear. And then we uh, we pushed it out on our YouTube channel, and within it was amazing. So I've never I've been in social media marketing my you know basically most of my professional life to some degree. I've never had anything that was even remotely close to viral. I mean, it's very utilitarian the way we use it. You post something, a very select audience sees it. They may act on it, they may not. So we post this video to YouTube, and within minutes, it's running on CNN. They're, they're playing our YouTube video. And I look at the YouTube counter, and it's hung at 301 views, 301 views. And it doesn't move. And I hit refresh on the page. I hit refresh on the page. It doesn't move. It doesn't move. And then we get a notification to our YouTube account that says, we're noticing abnormal activity on your video. We've temporarily disabled counting 
until we're able to, you know, ascertain what's going on. So I'm like, whatever. Well, I don't care. Well, then we're talking a little bit. Well, then I hit refresh again and it goes up to 2.7 million views of the video. And when it was all said and done, the video was viewed over 4 million times. Wow. Do you ever think about putting your own ad code to monetize it? Don't think that <laughs> Devious Tommy didn't think, you know, we could get a little pre-roll before this thing. A little money. Had yeah. the old savings account. If this had occurred two years later, we could have had maybe a little Twitter account just kind of scroll across the bottom. For this podcast. Yeah. So I sent an email as this was happening that I regret sending to this day. Uh-oh. And it wasn't because there was any malintent behind it, but it was because it was a focal point of a later lawsuit. Mm. And what I said in my email was to the hospital president, a few of the administrators in leadership, and I said, the videos posted, YouTube is blowing up, I've never seen anything like this. Probably not the most professional way to say it, but again, we were, you know, we were all in the bunker together. I knew these people pretty well. And YouTube was blowing up. I mean, I'd never seen anything like this. Is it just the fact that you commented it? I mean, it's not like so you said this was later, YouTube shat This was later <laughs> turned to be used against me to look very uncaring. When my comment was absolutely marveling at what I was observing. I've never seen anything like this happen with a YouTube video in my life. Yeah. But it was later used to cast me in litigation as somebody who was only interested in... YouTube manipulating views. the situation to positively benefit the hospital and be very uncaring to the individuals involved. You're trying to get the hospital over is what they're saying. Exactly. They're, they are saying that I was using others to get the hospital over without, without a thought or care to how that might make anybody else feel. And that, that, um, I mean, you talk about like the Bill Clinton depositions where he says, what does is mean? It depends what your definition of yeah. is is. I spent no less than probably 45 minutes under examination from attorneys explaining blowing up and what that could possibly mean. Wow. It was, it was one of the – if you could go back, you know, obviously short of you know, something that would change the outcome of somebody's life or health, but like in the things that I did, just sending that email using the word blowing up was probably the thing I would take back the what most. What were they... Even if I sent an email that just said, my goodness, the YouTube channel is getting a lot of views. This is like unlike anything I've ever seen. I feel like that would have even been acceptable. But yeah. the, 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 I guess the cavalier way that they portrayed me as approaching it by saying blowing up was used to kind of so guess, smear my character in the entire re- situation. You just repeatedly said, that's... Not what I meant. I was just taken aback by the sheer no, number of views. Yeah, and that's what I said. I said, I, I'm separating w- the gravity of the situation entirely from the fact that I've never seen a YouTube video get 2 million views in an hour. Yeah. yeah. And, and as somebody that works in that industry, I'm marveling at that, independent of anything else that's going on. And I said, that was where that terminology came from. But it's just basically, they're painting it as it's a very slang and maybe right. not it's it's proper. basically correct yeah it's it's me looking at a me looking at a situation that they were spinning to be well and rightfully so to be very grave and very serious and having you know some type of humorous read on yeah it. you're just like skateboard man right Being like man when, totes blowing yeah. up i mean when in actuality if you you know and of course this doesn't come out if you knew the 
painstaking detail that went into the release of that to ensure that nothing was ever done that wasn't completely above board and with consent of everyone happened, you would, you know, you could, you could take that out of context and say that, yeah, that clearly means that, that they were up to, uh, but she ultimately kind of made it look like, or that, that she felt that she was not just persuaded to do that, but kind of forced to do it. Here's what I'll say, and I, and I don't know, I don't think there's, I think this matter's been solved, but I think we're, and I'll speak in general terms, yeah, but I think when it's you're... It's been solved. She's part of the 80% that never had to go back into work again, but still got paid. <laughs> That's how it got solved. Your words, not mine. Um, I think what, what the legal opinion was is that there, you could be in such a state due to a serious medical condition that you might not you could contend that you were not able to make a yeah. rational decision. And I think that the, it would be up to a court or a medical professional to decide if that was the case in this instance. Right. Because I don't think it was ever brought into real debatable question whether or not all policies, procedures, and protocols were followed. It was more of a matter of if the people making the decisions were in a position where they could you know, cognitively do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm intentionally being vague here because that's way out of my way. Out of, I'm no, not staying in my lane, bro. On that, no, that's fair. I mean, fair all, assessment. And, and again, in in when those big court cases get built, they're they're building a narrative using the testimony of a ton of people. And my testimony is only around what did you do to make this video happen? Not not you know do you know they try to get you to comment on other things and you just say I'm not qualified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, did you think that you know she this this this? I'm I'm not a doctor. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. You know, all I know is is I said this and she said this. You know that yeah. that's where you leave that. It is fun how funny how they can play it from both sides that you're the unprofessional using slang and whatever, but also ask you highly professional right. questions. Right. And also, yeah, approaching it in the most yeah in the most uh, professional way possible. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of that is kind of skipping ahead a little bit. So, one of the things that um, happened, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of warp time a little bit here. So. Those individuals ultimately left the hospital. They were treated and had um, positive outcomes. So they're, they're both fine. There's, there was no, uh, as far as I know, there's been no long-term damage done. Um, when they returned home to Texas after the incident, there was a lot of media involvement around that. And this is when our same crack team of PR <laughs> pros, they're very plugged in with George W. Bush. And they said... How cool would it be if the nurses come back to the hospital and George Bush is there to greet them? W is there to greet them. Okay. How? So they are transferred to another hospital. Yeah, How and then it's weeks, weeks, if not months, okay. because there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that have to there's a lot of things that have to go on. So just to before they, somebody's kind of cleared to reenter society. Yeah. So they, you get back Sunday night. Right. There, you get the call that. Two of the nurses have come down with Ebola. Mm-hmm. You get back. You do the video with one of them middle of that week. Right. And then that same week, are they transferred out? Yeah, it okay. was later that week. So we kind of, several of the things we touched on, the video comes out, the employee rally that we kind of helped organize. Um, I, I didn't even say, was we the, didn't even help organize it. We helped facilitate it. The employees actually came to us with the idea. And I think that's an important distinction, too, because I think that was always miscast as like a stunt. It really wasn't. It was very organic. 
the employees wanted to do it. And then once they're gone, you know, then our job kind of shifts to, to damage control. The rally, and maybe I have this wrong in my head because I remember watching that in the news. The staff out there with the signs, was that when they were being transported out? Yes. That's, that's the way I remember it. Yes, that's, that's when they're... So, you know, we were doing, like, the narrative that, that the employees room was like, hey, we're going to see you real soon. You know, you show them what Texas is all about. You know, that kind of, that kind of sentiment. Gotcha. So, right after that happens, 60 Minutes becomes... Or not 60 Minutes. Well, 60 Minutes later, but the CBS Evening News becomes real interested in doing a story about how the whole process through the ER happened and how this could possibly go down. And they sent their lead anchor, which is a guy named Scott Pelly, which I don't know if you're aware of him or not. Yeah. Very distinguished older gentleman. That was one of the craziest things I've ever been a part of because the, the day that the news was to air that evening, they told us they wanted to do it. They had sent producers in ahead. And again, these producers like are New York level producers and they are like ball busters. And they're like, we want to go in the room. Well, you can't go in the room. Why not? Well, we want to, you know, like they're demanding all these things and we're just, you know, I'm, I'm their kind of tour guide. Hold on. They want, are the <laughs> nurses still there? No, they're wanting to go in the original patient's room. Oh, okay. And that's still quarantined. Gotcha. I mean, there's probably no danger there, but they're wanting access that we're not giving them. But at the same time, it's really funny because they're, they're again, there's like these ladies, like young, probably like 25 year old ladies from New York. They've never been to Texas. And they're walking around the hospital and like marveling at it. Like, well, this isn't at all what I expected. Like, this is really nice. You know, and it's, it's, it's just funny because the whole national narrative had gone to the point of like, this is, this is some backwoods, you know, they're, they're working on a sawdust floor with, you know, got a patient stretched across sawhorses. Yeah, they got the iron to cauterize it after they yeah. do a World War It was War the funniest thing I've ever amputation. seen. That, that this lady, you know, lady, this producer for 60 Minutes is saying... Like, wow, this is like a real hospital. We're like, yeah, this is like one of the most, you know, preeminent medical institutions in the entire state. Yeah. Uh, so they decide that they've got enough there to go with a story. And they're going to bring in Scott Pelly. Okay. And again, so this is probably 11 or 12 o'clock. He's in New York to do the news. He's on the ground in a motorcade at the hospital, 2.30, 3 o'clock. He walks in in his suit. Perfectly um, two, dressed. 3 a.m.? No, afternoon. Okay. Walks in, does his shot where he's walking down the hall, points out a few points of interest, gets back in his motorcade, and when we flip on the news at 7 o'clock, he's back in New York at the anchor desk doing the prepared package that they did three hours before. Wow. So he, okay. he's at the hospital all of 30 minutes? Yeah, 30 minutes, if that. Now, his... You know, his, his Staff, producers, crew were there in front, but he swoops in, makes his live shot, or not his live shot, his, his on-site shot, and has gone and back at whatever private airstrip and, and on a private chartered jet back to New York for the news that night. Does that seem a little silly? It does, because you like, think with technology today, you could have him standing in front of a screen. Yeah. But, I mean, he was there. I've, I'll, I'll tweet a picture of that as well, like of me standing right next to him. Wow. When he's standing... Uh, Standing in the hospital. But yeah, that was one of the crazier things. But the last thing I want to say um, about this, and then I think we'll probably have a logical end to this episode, and then the last episode will be around the uh, the trial, I'm or so, lack of trial. I'm so excited to get the deposition, deposition Tommy going. The deposition talk. 
Um, so George W. Bush is there to welcome the nurses back. So these guys, these crisis communicators, are so detail-oriented, and they don't trust us to do anything. So the idea is that George W. Bush is going to sign a poster that lists out, that has like the hospital name and lists out all the staff that cared for the patient, and then he's going to sign it in front of her and hand it to her. So they basically hand tell my to who the patient when she comes back. Okay. So my boss, they basically tell my boss, you have one job. Make sure that you have a Sharpie in your jacket and you hand it to George W. Bush when the time's right so he can sign this poster. That's all you have to do. We're going to handle every other logistic. And, and what's funny is when a former president visits the hospital, you can't talk about it because there's still a security threat and the Secret Service puts you on a communications ban. Because if, you, if I were to like text you guys and just say, hey, George W. Bush is going to be here an hour – and you, that communication was somehow intercepted, like his life could be in peril. Yeah. So we go into a full communication lockdown. All we have to do is get this Sharpie transported. Well, these guys trusted us so little that they went through the hospital and in every single potted plant across the entire concourse of the hospital, they put a Sharpie. Every single one. There was 40 Sharpies. There were, the crisis was over months and we were still finding Sharpies stashed in various locations throughout the hospital. And that was the, the crisis team. Yeah, that's the level of preparedness that you're paying for with a crisis communication I'd like I'd like to see the scenario where, like, Secret Service is kind of, like, reviewing the floor, and they're like, there's something not right. There's, like, these weird Sharpie-looking things yeah. in every plant. Yeah. This can't be real. <laughs> so... I'd like to say that that's where the happy ending of the story stops and they come back and everybody's fine and we move on with our lives. But then things start to get a little weird. We start to get some notifications from our legal department that say, um, hey, don't throw away any paper in your desk. Um, don't delete any emails off your phone. Don't delete any text messages. Um, Personal and private? Any, any communication device you have, don't trade it in or get a new one. And we're starting to wonder, like, they never tell us why, but we're starting to wonder what's happening. And what's happening is um, litigation is starting to swirl, and um, some attorneys have gotten involved, and there may be some lawsuits that could, at this point, actually jeopardize the future of the company. <laughs> <laughs>